After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. Welcome to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where leaders inspire leaders. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Evan Leong, and with me is my co-host, Carrie Leong. Thank you, Evan. Today's guest is Jeff Watanabe, Managing Director of Watanabe Ng and Komeji LLC. Jeff is also the Chairman of the Consuelo Zobel Alger Foundation, a position he has tenured since 1991. He is a community leader and on the board of more than a dozen for-profit and non-profit organizations. In 1971, Jeff and a group of lawyers established their firm, then the youngest law firm in the state, which went head-to-head -head with the more established agencies. As a law student, he worked in the office of Senator Daniel Inouye in the late 1960s. Please welcome to Greater Good Radio, Jeff Watanabe. Welcome to our show, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You're so involved with so many things. Could you give us a quick rundown of all the things that you do? Huh. Well, I'm still the oldest person in my law firm, so I'm still there. Uh, but I spend a considerable amount of my time now really on the corporate side uh, with businesses. And uh, I still do a fair amount of nonprofit work. But isn't it something like 10 or 11 nonprofit boards? Yeah, fewer. I've tried to cut down uh, the number of nonprofit boards that I'm sitting on. So the primary ones right now are the Sesame Workshop in New York, where I, that I've been on the board for 20 years, uh, and uh, the Consuelo Foundation, which does work here as well as in the Philippines, and the Nature Conservancy. So those are the three of the ones that I spend probably most of my time on currently. And then for your business ventures, though, you are the current chairman of HEI, along with an, uh, being a partner in your law firm, along with being on a host of for-profit boards, right? That's correct. I am the non-executive chair of, of Hawaiian Electric Industries, and I, and I sit on the board of a couple of public companies, uh, as well as several private companies. Well, what does that mean, non-executive chair? It means I'm not responsible for running the company. That's what it really means. Uh, but uh, Hawaiian Electric is a particularly is is a unique company because it has basically th it's really three companies: a bank, a utility, and a holding company. Each of those three companies, in turn, are regulated by different agencies. There are three boards, so it's a complex governance structure for a company that size. Could you tell us about your law background? How did you get involved with the law? Um, how did you get, in you get involved with the law? <laughs> Not everything I do is legal. <laughs> tell us about your running with the law. <laughs> how did you get involved in law and what made you interested in practicing it? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure. Um, there are no lawyers in my family. I went to Roosevelt High School and uh, then ended up getting my undergraduate degree from Berkeley. You know, that was during the Southeast Asian Wars. And uh, if you weren't in graduate school, you were in Vietnam. And so I'm sure that had something to do with my decision to go to law school, because <laughs> that was a very difficult time. But it was also a time when students uh, were really kind of at the forefront of, of the social movement. So it was a very exciting time for me. 
And I actually had thought about uh, going to graduate school after law school. And a professor of mine suggested that I was doing things backward, that I shouldn't apply for a PhD in a PhD program at Berkeley uh, if I was ten intending to go to law school after that. He said, you know, you never know what's going to happen, so go to law school first and and if you want to get a graduate degree later, then that's fine. And um, he turned out to be right, because I never went back to uh, get a PhD. And so how did you decide what type of law you wanted to focus in on? Well, the area of my undergraduate degree was always public jurisprudence. It was really public policy kinds of issues. And then I worked in Washington while I was going to law school for our then junior senator, Senator Danny Noe. And, uh, so that was an interesting time also, the 60s, uh, in Washington. And so when I came back, um, I worked for the Attorney General's office. Uh, Bert Kobayashi Sr., who was then Attorney General, was good enough to give me a job. And uh, worked there for about a year, maybe a year and a half, and then spent a stint in the Army. I was gone for another nine, month, nine or ten months. And then came back and started uh, with some other young foolish people, a law firm that none of us knew anything about starting. Yeah. When you were in Washington, how did that experience change your perspective of Hawaii and what you're going to do with your life? Yeah. Well, it had a profound impact, I think, on, on my uh, early career. Uh, one thing that happens in Washington, especially in the Senate, uh, the Senate is sort of at the pinnacle of, of politics, I think, in the country. It's made up of uh, very senior people who have spent many, many uh, years of their lives in public policy in most cases. And uh, you're really at the pinnacle of politics. And I think one of the things you learn is that you've got to love it to make it work. The other thing that, that Washington does, I think, to, to young people is it also makes them recognize, I think, how important it is uh, to go home. Um, Washington is a culture unto itself, and so a lot of people get caught up in that culture and never, never leave. Uh, but in my case, I had a boss who was pretty insistent uh, that, that I come back. He was right. He was right. Can you tell us the story behind that? Yeah, one day I was, uh, we were waiting for a vote, which is often the case. And in Washington, if you work for a senator or a congressman, if he's in the office or she's in the office, you're in the office. It doesn't matter what time of day or whether it's a weekend or a holiday. So we were wait waiting for a vote, and um, the senator came up to me and asked me. I was, I was a you know, clerk in the office. He asked me where I, what I was going to do when I finished law school. And I said, well, gee, I had gotten an offer to stay on committee and uh, was considering doing that. And he said, no, don't, don't do that. You go back. Go back home. And I said, well, why? You know, Washington's an exciting place. It was an exciting time. And he said, you know, don't think that you were able to get an education simply on your own. That a lot of people had to give up something so that you could do what you're doing now whether it's parents or grandparents, aunties and uncles, communities. And you have an obligation to go back, at least try go, going back and, and try to repay that. Uh, and his advice made sense to me, so I came home. And I've never been sorry. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for more on Greater Good Radio. 
After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. Howdy sell his company to Akamai Technologies for $3 billion. Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who donates 6% of sales to make more money? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. How do you get 100 stores and 100 million in sales in less than 10 years? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who raised $50,000 in a few weeks for the tsunami relief? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. And all while benefiting the community. Radio.com. We're back with Jeff Watanabe, Managing Director of Watanabe Ng and Komeji LLC. How did you initially meet Senator Inouye? Senator Inouye had a practice for many, many years, he probably still does, of helping kids from Hawaii who are there in Washington, usually going to school. And he's a G George Washington alum, mm. and that's where I went to law school. And so in those days, he used to hire specifically students from George Washington Law School to work either on patronage or on staff. And in my case, I was on patronage. So I actually met him through an old high school friend's father, who was a, also a member of the 442nd Infantry group that the senator knew. And so he wrote me a letter of introduction, actually. That's how I met him. Actually, politically, a kind of interesting story, my father had campaigned for Ben Dillingham, who ran against the senator. And I, I, I mentioned that to the senator, and of course he didn't care. It didn't matter to him at all. Would you consider him one of your primary mentors? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to this day, I, if I have a serious issue, I, I talk to him and I ask him. And we're, you know, he, we stay in touch. What would you say are the most important learning lessons you learned from him as your mentor? Well, Danny Noe is a his sense of strategy and ultimate determination to get things done is unbelievable. Uh, when I worked for him, he was a 44-year-old senator that had never lost an election. Today, he's 80 and continuing to do a remarkable job for our state. And a part of that had to do with his strategic approach to the Senate, number one. And number two, I think the kind of relationships he was able to engender on both sides of the aisles. Understanding that Hawaii was a small state, that we don't have a large congressional delegation, that it was very, very important that he utilize seniority and relationships in very strategic ways. And it's been, uh, it's been wonderful for, for, certainly for the state of Hawaii and its people. Being that you worked under him and you did mention that building relationships were really important, which is also really important in Hawaii, did he teach you any strategies of how to network, how to gain the most out of relationships, but also give to relationships as well? Yeah. You know, the senator, um, you learn more from the senator by watching than you do by anything else. And the senator also had mentors, um, you know, people like Sam Rayburn or or Lyndon Johnson were, were mentors of his. Interestingly enough, both of them were from Texas. And I always suspected that the relation, special relationship that the senator had with, with those senior uh, Texans had to do with his army service because the lost battalion 
which you guys are all too young to remember, but the Lost Battalion, which, which was a battalion of Texans that were saved by the 442nd Infantry uh, Group, were most grateful. And so the, the, the 442nd people had a special place in the heart of Texans. And Sam Rayburn was the speaker when the senator first joined the House, and then, uh, and then majority leader was Lyndon Johnson when he was in the Senate. So he maintained those relationships, and they were important to him. Um, he understood the importance of those relationships to the state, and he worked, he worked at them. So watching him do that was, uh, was a real experience. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for more on Greater Good Radio. After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. Is the greatest part of your workday the leftover lasagna you packed for lunch? Is it quickly becoming apparent that you and everyone you know are smarter than your boss? Just how satisfying is it to wear an untucked shirt on Fridays? It's time you stopped filling a position and started being fulfilled with a job that excites you every day, not just payday. And now is the perfect time to demand more of the work week. The Honolulu Star Bulletin and Midweek Work with Monsters so you can live up to your potential right here. Your calling is calling. Find it at starclassifieds.monster.com. We're back with Jeff Watanabe, Managing Director of Watanabe Inc. and Komeji LLC. As a young company with three young guys, mm -hmm. is there any advice that you could give of what you folks did right that helped you to keep your business running and still running today? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good question. I think number one is it's very helpful to find mentors. You know, to find people who have kind of been through part of that and who have some experience that you can tap. You don't have to listen to them. You don't have to do what they say. But at least they can give you a proper frame of reference. And they can help you judge how big a problem is, which is very difficult to do every, you know, when you see a new problem that you never saw before. So I think that's one thing that people ought to be doing. They ought to be looking for mentors. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I've had the pleasure of having young people come and ask me something or ask my advice or whatnot. The other dynamic that occurs in that is uh, perhaps a little cynical, but if somebody comes and asks me for my advice on a regular basis, I come to the conclusion that that's a brilliant person, right? Because they're asking me, uh, you know. So, so there's some of that too. There's a little bit of that kind of dynamic that, that people are willing, in other words, to, to be, be mentors and to be helpful where they can. Uh, the other is just hard work. I mean, I think that it's just hard work, and that kind of hard work can only be sustained over any period of time with passion. Without passion, you're not going to get that, because then it becomes drudgery, it becomes uh, something that you really don't want to do for any length of time. And for both, you know, both of you know as entrepreneurs that without that passion, you're not going to get there. And what that passion does is that it allows you to overcome the limitation of not being able to judge how big a problem is. Because you just attack every problem like it's a big one. And you know what? You overcome them. You overcome them. And, and that becomes a habit. Until you get older and then you figure out which is big and which is small and you kind of fall back into, into a, a different place. What would you say you're passionate about? Wow. I'm passionate about my family. I'm passionate about our community. 
You know, I do a lot of my work in, in large cities. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in New York and in Washington, other money centers. And I've met a lot of people in that regard, people who grew up with me. And I find them sitting at their desks or in their profession, sort of pressing buttons in the hope that someday a light's going to go on. I mean, they're, you know, they're over there trying to press buttons to make a difference, you know. And if they're really lucky, a light will go on, you know, sometime in the future because of what they did. The glorious part about living in Hawaii is because we don't have a community that's based on transactional issues. We have a community that's based on relationships. So when you press a button in Hawaii, lights go on in, a, in fairly short order. You know, that's a huge advantage of living living in a place. There are other advantages about living in Hawaii too. But I think that ability of being able to push a button and doing something because you're trying to improve something else and seeing it happen is the greatest satisfaction I think I get. Regarding relationships, are you able to give us some key ideas of how to have a relationship prosper? Maybe the top five things. Well, good question. I think the first thing you need to do is you need to be able to select people who you think can be helpful to you. And, and in my life, I've been very fortunate to come across those people. The second thing is real simple. Ask them. Because I think you'll find, as I said earlier, you'll find that people are more than willing to try to be helpful to the next generation of people coming up. And in my life, I've had mentors in a variety of areas. And I think that's another important thing, that it, it, it's not just one person. You know, there are people who have excelled in, in a great many areas that, are of, uh, that can be of importance to you, that have wisdom. When I was a youngster, uh, youngster practicing law, sometimes I'd get stuck, you know, I'd get stuck on some issue and I really didn't know the answer. And uh, there was a shoeshine guy by the name of Herbie who used to be in the Coelho Lane and then moved to First Hawaiian Bank. He used to be in the basement of First Hawaiian Bank. And Herbie knew a lot of people and he knew a lot about what was going on. And I'd go down and have my shoe shine, partly to kind of get away from the office. But I'd ask Herbie, hey Herbie, what do you think about this? And Herbie always had an answer, and nine out of 10 times it was right on, you know? It was right on, because he, he had a good sense about, about him. So there are people like Herbie. Uh, there are people like Danny Noe, who have this tremendous capability of developing strategies and relationships. Herb Cornell was another one, a great loss to the community. Had run companies from the time he was, I think, in his 20s. Great wit. Never had meetings in his office, you know. I, he was a big guy. He used to run Dillingham Corporation in the old days. Later became chairman of the Campbell Estate. And he'd call me up and he'd say, can we meet? And I'd say, sure, you know. And he said, well, I'll come to your office. And I said, no, well, I'll come to your office. No, no. He said, no, I'll come to your office. So he'd always come to my office. You know, and we had a little dinky law firm, and here's this guy uh, who'd come in, and big executive. And, and when I got to know him better, I asked him once. I said, Herb, why do, why do you always come to my office? Why, why don't you let me come to your office? And he said, Jeff, when I go to people's office, I can control how long the meeting lasts. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's 
to me it's brilliant and I've always remembered that because you know, you're right right somebody comes to your office you can't leave <laughs> you know you can't turn it off you know and so I mean Herb was a Herb was a great mentor and had a great uh, sense of humor um, George Ariyoshi uh, George Ariyoshi has this simple clarity about what he what he says and what he thinks and what he believes that's a real important characteristic I think of having that kind of simple clarity there's nothing complicated about what he says you know he says look you know if you if you want something to happen you got a plan <laughs> we all agree with that right but you know I mean he, he he's always had that Walter Dodds you know Walter and I are not that far apart in age but you know he's been a mentor uh, very much so and Walter has this tremendous passion for life and this uh, he devours information. I mean, Walter just devours information, you know, and, and facts, and and has instincts that are uh, incredibly sharp, and he's very insightful. So, you know, you can go on and on, but there are a lot of people. Um, Gladys Brandt, I, I don't know if you know Gladys Brandt, Auntie Gladys. Auntie Gladys was the head of Kamehameha School for Girls. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for more on Greater Good Radio. After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. Hawaiian time, Neptunites, the sunshine in your mouth. Neptunites, For bubble tea supplies in your home, at a party or business, contact Bubble Tea Supply at 948-2622 or online at bubbletea.com. Neptunites, the sunshine in your mouth. How do you sell his company to Akamai Technologies for $3 billion? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who donates 6% of sales to make more money? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. How do you get 100 stores and 100 million in sales in less than 10 years? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who raised $50,000 in a few weeks for the tsunami relief? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. And all while benefiting the community. Radio. We're back with Jeff Watanabe, Managing Director of Watanabe Inc. and Komeji LLC. You're involved with the Consuelo Foundation. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and how you got involved? Mm. Patty Lyons, who is one of the founding uh, members of the Consuelo Foundation, calls it a foundation of miracles. And uh, while I'm not a particularly spiritual person, she's got a point. Consuelo Foundation does work with indigenous partners, both here in Hawaii as well as in the Philippines. About three-quarters of our funding is uh, expended in the Philippines, and a quarter of it here. It was started by a woman by the name of Consuelo Zobel Alger. Uh, Consuelo was married to a U.S. Army general, uh, and they decided after living all over the world to, to um, settle here when the, he retired, and then he passed away many people did not know is Consuelo was also 
the an early generation of a group of Spanish Filipinos that came to the Philippines in the early 1800s and built up what was a huge uh, corporate empire in the Philippines. They, uh, her family were the, were the first people to develop a Western style housing development in Asia. And it's now called Forbes Park, which is sort of the place to live in the Philippines. And uh, then built a city uh, built Makati, which took over from the old, uh, the old part of the of Manila. And so, if you go to the Philippines and you see Ayala Boulevard, and you know, I mean, it, they they they're still very very prominent people in the Philippines. And she had she had met Jim Alger at a polo match at the Manila Polo Club. Her family were all polo players, and and. Uh, her uh, to-be husband was a cavalry officer, and so that's how they met, and then they were married, and she went off and, and became a general's wife. She was living here. I was, on the, I was still on the board of Child and Family Service at the time, and uh, we had an adoption agency, and the adoption agency used to get children from all over Asia and, and place them here. And interestingly, one of the few Asian countries that we could get males was from the Philippines. In most most Asian countries, you can get the females, but you can't get the males. Well, in the Philippines, for some interesting cultural reasons, the opposite was true. When Cory Aquino took office, the adoption stopped. And so we sent a delegation to the Philippines to find out why. And what the end result of it was that they said, well, gee, you know, we trust you guys. We've been doing business with the Child and Family Service for many years. But why don't you do something here in the Philippines? You know, and the quid pro quo is they would start up the adoptions again. And so we looked at it, and, and one of the challenges the Child and Family Service had, or any social service had, was to access the Filipino community locally. Uh, it was growing very rapidly, continues to grow very rapidly. And, and it's not an easy community to break into. And we thought, gee, if we had a program in the Philippines, you know, that might be a really good entree for, for Child and Family Service to get more involved in, in, in the Filipino community. And so we started, actually my wife was involved, Lynn was involved in starting it. They, we started it with the government of the Philippines, a street children's project in Baguio, which is about 200 miles north of Manila, up in the mountainous region of the Philippines. And, uh, and then went to the Filipino community here to try to get funding for this program. And Mrs. Alger was at one of these at one of these sessions and funded basically the first child and family service Philippine Islands programs in Baguio. And she was so inspired and so happy about the results of that program that she decided that when she that she would leave her entire fortune to a foundation that would be set up to do that kind of work and to do work here because she loved Hawaii. And so she left her considerable wealth to what is now known as the Consuelo Foundation. We now have 130 partners in the Philippines that go all the way from the northern Luzon through the 7,000 islands down to, um, down to Basilan, which is down in the southern tip and, uh, of, of Mindanao. Um, we have a fairly good-sized staff there now. We have headquarters also here in Honolulu uh, at the old Eagle, um, Eagle Noodle Factory that we purchased and renovated. And um, it's doing great work. Can you share with us the story about Sesame Workshop and how that came about? Sure. 
uh, Sesame Workshop was really started by Joan Gantz Cooney, who was actually a television producer, but I believe she had an education degree. And she met a fellow by the name of Lloyd Morissette, who was then with the Carnegie Foundation and Ford, and came up with this idea that television was such a powerful tool that it ought to be used to educate children. And they funded the first research that went into Sesame Street. And there was a, there's, continues to be a lot of research that goes into every half hour of Sesame Street, both from a curriculum standpoint as well as measuring how much children learn and how, how long they have, their attention span lasts with certain kinds of episodes and certain kinds of directions. So there is a lot of research that continues to go into, into uh, Sesame Street. We also do and, uh, a lot what they call longitudinal studies, which m try to measure how children are doing uh, who are in a control group that have watched Sesame Street and others who have not. Uh, and so there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of measurement involved in, in doing that. And of course, over the years, Sesame Street early on was really the only children's preschool program around. And now there are very, very many, which is a good thing. Um, in fact, I think one of our objectives at Sesame Street was to, to fill what we saw as a huge vacuum uh, of using education for television as education for young children. Wasn't Sesame Street partially funded by a Hawaii initiative? Ah, yes. Well, what happened in the 1970s is that some of Sesame's funders included the U.S. government, the Department of Education, and some of the people at Sesame Street realized that it was going to be difficult in the long run to, re to rely on that kind of funding, governmental funding. So the Ford Foundation gave Sesame a grant to go look for profit-making businesses where they could utilize their expertise. And one of the areas they looked at, one was radio as a matter of fact, and they acquired several radio stations, but the other one was cable television. And they did a big study and realized that Hawaii had a unique market for cable television. In the early days of cable, for instance, there was no, you know, Hawaii was one of the few markets where there were no um, distant signals. You couldn't bring in, if you, were, if you were in Portland, somebody could bring in a signal, for instance, from Seattle. Mm -hmm. Here in Hawaii, we were isolated, so that wasn't possible. Our geography was unique because you have valleys and mountains, so regular television stations had trouble getting signals into those valleys. And so cable was looked at as a possible investment. And they put together a group, actually that's how I met them, because they hired our law firm to help them. So we helped them acquire an existing cable company. And years later, when Sesame and the other uh, shareholders were, were purchased by uh, their shares were purchased by what ended up becoming Time Warner. The profits made from that, uh, that sale became the endowment for Sesame Street, which today is somewhere as north of $200 million. So we could actually say that Sesame Street's growth and international impact is due to Hawaii? Absolutely. And, it's made, you know, and Sesame has made a, made a big difference in the world and continues to make a big difference, I think, in the world. Thanks for joining us today on Greater Good Radio. For more information or a transcript of today's show, please visit us online at greatergoodradio.com. This is your host, Evan Leong and Carrie Leong, saying please join us next time for another episode of Greater Good Radio, Hawaii.